Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You can tell um, just by the title what general direction we're going to go this morning, and I will um, really confess to you that I always feel like I'm on a bit of shaky ground when I preach about pain, because in truth, I think I have experienced nothing close to the kind of pain many of you have walked through in your life. And so for me, when I feel the Lord um, leading me towards the topic of pain for a sermon, um, much of the struggle during the week is not to figure out what to say, but to recognize in my own heart that if God doesn't speak, I have almost nothing to say of any value on this subject. I wonder if anyone else feels similar to me. In general, I've had bad days, but I've lived a fairly charmed life. And I tell my wife from time to time, I'm waiting for the day when I get mine. It's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. I remember first coming across the phrase, no pain, no gain, on a Body by Soloflex um, ad back in the 80s or 90s, whenever those things started coming out. And so most often I hear the phrase, no pain, no gain, in the context of bodybuilding or fitness. And I imagine it's kind of true. I didn't realize how far back that saying goes. I mean, it goes back to Benjamin Franklin. He wrote that in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1734. If you go back even further, it dates back to the Greek playwright Sophocles in the 5th century B.C., who wrote the same thing in a play called Electra. I think it's a, a statement that is as old as human thought that we don't grow from easy things. If there's no weights on the bar, you're doing reps, but you're not getting stronger. So this idea that it takes resistance and often hardship to shape the things in a person that want to stay the same, don't want to grow. It's not great news because none of us really likes pain. None of us really enjoys hardship. And maybe it's overstated when it comes to spiritual life because I have grown and gained quite a bit from pain-free, positive experiences. So I don't want to suggest that the only form of Christian growth is from pain. I hope that you'll grow from this and I'm not going to cause you pain in the hearing of this sermon. So there are pain-free growing experiences. But the truth is some of the things that most stubbornly cling to us that don't want to grow, those things get shaped through resistance and hardship. God makes it really clear through Scripture that suffering and hardship are things that he so often uses or permits in order to grind away things in us or to shape things in us um, that we need to grow in. And yet, I don't want that to be some cheap throwaway truism that God grows us through our pain. Because if that's all you hear and you walk away, it's, it can be very damaging to hold that idea or that phrase in your head without really understanding how that works. And so I want to explore in the first part of this message some of the mechanics of how that actually works. How does God use pain to create gain in our lives? I grew up in churches where I would hear slogans 
And that was it. Like, God wants to do this. And then I would go, okay, great. How? And I wouldn't hear it. I would just hear how much he wants to do this or how much he wants to do that. And I was so craving some guidance. Like, how exactly does that work? Because right now, in what I'm feeling, I think the opposite is happening. So I dug around quite a bit in Scripture. I found at least six, maybe possibly eight ways that God grows us. Uh, that would be painful if I gave you all eight of them. So I'm, I've chosen to give you a few. Um, I think these are the ones that really jumped out at me. Ways that God uses pain and hardship, or what the Bible calls trials in our life to become gain. I want to look first at James 1, 2 to 3, and then verse 12. This might be familiar to many of you. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Man, right away, what a strange, almost offensive verse. Consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know, and pay attention to this verse, that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You know, last week we considered the fact that you cannot actually practice forgiveness until someone does something wrong against you. It's meaningless to just be a forgiving person. That makes no sense at all. In order to forgive, someone must do something worthy of forgiveness. And in the same way, you cannot grow in endurance unless you are in the midst of something you desperately wish would end, but you cannot make it end. One of the great blessings of trials is that while they are hard, they are one of the few real opportunities in this life for this thing called perseverance or endurance to grow. It's interesting that in Scripture, in the New Testament, there's this Greek word. I often don't pull out the Greek, but there's this word parismos in the Greek, which is a very curious word because almost every time you read the English words trial or temptation, it's translating the same word. And at first I thought it was weird that trial and temptation ought to be the same word in the Greek language. But if you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense that those two ideas are so tied up with each other. That it is often in hardship or trials that we experience the greatest temptations. Temptations to give up, to cut corners, to stuff down and deny our convictions, to forget our commitments. It is only in hardship that we're most sorely tempted to be other than who we truly believe we're supposed to be or who we want to be. You know, I had a, a really edifying conversation with someone from our church this past week about this topic of spiritual warfare. And I realized how there is a branch of the church that has turned spiritual warfare into this kind of uh, martial art of the soul. You do these things, but it, there are dimensions of that for sure. But this is where spiritual warfare really shows up. It's where we suddenly need to remember that we're not just battling against ourselves. Do you know what I'm saying? 
We're not just fighting our own nature. We also have an enemy who hates God's guts and who hates us. And where he shows up most often is in the highest highs and the lowest lows of our lives. Most other times, he's lazy, so he leaves us alone. Why bother someone who's just sitting there like a log? Right? You don't bother that. You only swat at the flies that are trying to get in your nostril. And so that's the way the enemy so often is. And it's interesting that one of the names we give Satan is tempter. That's because he's that voice that comes up next to you and whispers at the very moment when you need to hear the voice of God. He whispers things like, it ain't worth it. Just bail. Cut and run. Get out of here. Just drop it. Why would you stick to your convictions? Who else cares about any of this? Aren't you an idiot for trying to do the right thing when the whole world seems to be doing the wrong thing? He's that voice that comes next to you and whispers those things which in your flesh you so badly want to believe in that moment. But somewhere deep down, there is a living God in you that won't let you just easily go there. And there's a fight going on inside of you. You know that picture of the devil and the angel on each shoulder duking it out with you? You're like, well, this is like a tennis match. (laughs) That's real. There is this voice of truth, this being who lives inside of you, and there's this enemy outside of you who wants to whisper in the voice that sounds like your own. I was forced by a small group leader. When I say forced, I mean not like he physically manhandled me, but I was like, like I was not going to be the only person in our group who did not watch it. He made us watch The Exorcist in college. I hate him so much for that. And I grew up thinking that's what spiritual warfare looked like. Pea soup shooting out of nostrils and heads spinning around. I've been in parts of the world and in situations where something similar to that was happening. So I'm not going to say that that's not at all the face of spiritual warfare. But my goodness, this is where I fight the enemy the most. It's in these hardships where this temptation rises. Just give up. Take shortcuts. Forget my convictions or my commitments. You know, the Navy SEALs, uh, in order to become one, you don't just join, you have to make it through. And many, many men and women enter the training school each year. And less than 10% actually make it all the way through the whole process. It's over a year-long process of screening and training. And throughout that entire process, if you want to bail, all you have to do, there's this physical uh, reminder that you have the exit door available to you at any moment. This little bell. And the thing is, you're not allowed to secretly just whisper, Hey, uh, sir. I'd like to quit. You're not allowed to do that secretly. You gotta walk up to the front of everybody and ding, 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 ding. Like you gotta ring the bell, like I'm out. And it signals to everyone you reached your limit. It's not so much that you're a quitter, but for whatever reasons, you are no longer gonna pursue this. And you don't get to even be quiet within your own spirit. You're declaring it to yourself I'm out. And that bell just stands there on the, the most grueling days of punishment. And you're staring at that bell like, all I would have to do 
is ring that bell. And many, many do. Nine out of ten will leave the program, voluntarily or involuntarily. But the few who make it through, who find that their endurance is rising in the face of this, they get a pin and a status that very few other human beings do. That's the reason why you see a lot of these Stolen Valor videos on YouTube because a real Navy SEAL cannot stand a fake Navy SEAL because it costs far too much to be named that thing. One of the ways that God grows us through pain is that it is through pain our perseverance and our endurance get shaped. When we look at 1 Peter 4, 12-13, we see another dimension. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Another way that the adversary comes at us is that in the midst of suffering, he says, what are you doing this for? What's the point of it anyway? Who told you you have to endure any of it? Just go. And the voice of the Holy Spirit then responds, he is worthy of this. You didn't set off on this journey because you thought it was a good thing to do. You responded to the call of someone who loves you and has saved you, who has called you to do something with your life greater than what you would have done with it. And so the voice of God says to us, he is worthy of pinning our hopes on him. And the other voice says, no, no one is worth this. When we endure through hardship, and identify with and share in the sufferings of Christ, it is a way that we are saying, I am pinning my hopes to you, Jesus. That you are who you say you are, and that you will deliver the things you have promised. Because right now it feels like this is all meaningless, and I don't understand why I'm going through it. But I'm pinning my hope on this. That those who trust in you, stay faithful to you, one day when you are revealed, we will finally be vindicated and will share your joy also. And I couldn't think of a better illustration to, to really help you figure this out than the Chicago Cubs. How many of you are true Cubs fans? Like real true Cubs fans? Yeah, Howie, I knew he was going to raise his hand. Raise two hands, Howie. Why not? Yeah. Now, I'm not a true Cubs fan. In fact, I'm not even a baseball fan. But when the Chicago Cubs won the World Series over the Cleveland Indians in 2016, I was pretty happy along with everyone else because I jumped on the bandwagon during playoffs. I got suddenly interested in baseball. And when I thought, oh, they're going to go all the way, I'm like, yeah, I am like for the moment a Cubs fan. Even a lot of Sox fans were reluctant, like, yeah, all right. I mean, they're having their moment. Let's not hate them too much. But I think about the difference in joy and vindication between pseudo-fans like me and guys like Howie, many others who for generations 
endured losing season after losing season, still pinning their hope on this team that never seemed to deliver anything but disappointment. Because they believed against all evidence that one day, these fools are going to bring home the pennant. And in 2016, they did. And on that day, I guarantee you the happiness I felt and the happiness that Howie felt cannot be in the same room compared to one another. There's no difference. There's no, no similarity between them. Because I came in so late, and I dabbled a little bit in the drama. Others walked that walk for a really long time. And what Peter is trying to say to us is those of us who pin our hope on this Jesus who says one day he will return and this broken, messed up world will be made new and there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more goodbyes. On that day, he will be revealed to the whole world. There's no doubt about this question. Is God real? Is Jesus who he said he was? On that day, everything will be settled. It's no longer a question. It is now common universal knowledge. And on that day, some people's joy will be much greater than others. Because those folks stayed with him through all of it. When it comes to Jesus, I want to be more like Howie. Who had to be a loser... Over and over till he was a winner. Howie, don't take that person. You know what I mean. I just, I think Cubs fans are a living picture of faith. Are you with me? One reason that God permits hardship is that as we share in it with Jesus, our joy is magnified on the day where he's vindicated. We're also vindicated with him. Let me give you one last one. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, So, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials, pay attention here, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. One of the hidden blessings of hardship and pain is that it tests what we're made of and reveals the truth of that to us. One of the joys of being a Christian isn't just making it through trials, but making it through and realizing that the faith I claimed in fair weather is real and held even in the middle of the storm. You know, I was a very avid tennis player when I was younger, and my body is trying to negotiate with me to give up on that, but... This was my best friend when I was learning tennis. The practice wall. I hit quite literally tens of thousands of balls against the practice wall until I could reliably hit 100 strokes without missing, just over and over. And if that's the way you learn tennis, 
I'm not sure you're ready to call yourself a tennis player just yet. Because the thing about a wall is that it's basic geometry. It does exactly what you expected. You hit it this way. I'm already at the place where I know that the angle is going to... Walls don't think. They don't surprise you. They don't zig when you're expecting it to zag. That would be an incredible moment. You hit it like this, and then the ball goes there, and you're like, what? That never happens. Walls are predictable. They are controlled environments where we're going through the motions, and we're developing wax on, wax off, but you know... Can we just say, tell, tell the truth there? Wax on, wax off does not win karate fights. It might teach you conditioning. But at some point, if you really want to know what you've got, you've got to face an adversary. You've got to play against someone who's got a mind of their own and will throw curveballs at you, will do things you don't expect, will test whether you really are as good as you think you are. I served tens of thousands of balls to no one. My main goal was to get it in the box, and I could do that. But I was never really ready for if someone actually hit that sucker back. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's another stroke after that. The beauty of hardship is that in the midst of it, we are pitted against ourselves, against the world, against an enemy. And through it all, we're able to see what exactly is in there. How much faith is there really in this spirit of mine? How much grit exists in my heart? When I see people who run these uh, obstacle endurance races, uh, some people in our church run these things, uh, thing, things like the Spartan race, doesn't that just look insane like it's a Hollywood? That's just a woman in a race jumping over fiery logs. Some of us in this church, I shouldn't say some of us, I'm not part of that class of people. Some of you have done that. Or you see things like Tough Mudder. That does not look like anything like people should want to do. This was one of the tamer pictures from Tough Mudder. It, it looks like torture that's voluntary. And when I see people running races like this, I used to joke, like, what, why are they punishing themselves? What are they trying to absolve themselves of? But the truth is, when I see a race like that, I don't think, and this is just my theory, I don't think they're running against the other runners. I think the point of a race like this is not to win, it is to finish and know at the end of it that something that you thought was in there was actually in there. I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't make it a tenth of the way through either of those races. I'm not pretty sure. I think, I am certain. <laughs> I wouldn't make it through 10% of that race. But for the people who make it through, there is a knowledge about themselves that can only be gained through that experience. Sweating it out in a gym and doing all that, that's one thing. But you always wonder, if it really gets that bad, will I make it or will I cave? Will there be enough or not? And it takes trials for us to know that truth about ourselves, which we suspect or hope but cannot confirm. One of the blessings of hardship as a Christ follower is that it's an opportunity to test and reveal something deep within what is really there in my relationship with Jesus, in my faith. When it gets that bad, what will I find in my spirit in response 
to the hardships of this world. One of the things the enemy does in moments like that is accuses. That's another one of his names. He's the accuser. One of the things he'll say is you're not enough. In a way, he's absolutely right. But he's saying also, there's no one enough. You're just not going to make it. This is too much. This will break anyone. And in those moments, we're not going to make it through just by digging down deep inside ourselves. But in moments like that, we ask, will I turn to him when I'm most tempted to turn away? And when we do, we find that we're able many times to make it to the other side. Nobody really enjoys pain. But it's really something God often uses to shape us, to form Christ's heart and character in us. I don't think the real question is whether God can use pain to shape us into Christ's likeness. I think the greater question we're always up against is do I care about being Christ-like. I think that's the greatest battle we fight is do I want the things of God in my life? I don't have any doubt that God can and often will deliver us from the hardships of this world. I don't doubt that when I'm in the thick of it, I will, that I, I, I won't pray to him for deliverance. But I think the real question is, do you want to be like Christ enough that even if he uses pain, it is still a gain to you if on the other side of it, you are more like Jesus than when you went in? There's a number of people very close to me who are in the keto diet thing right now. Any of you ever done the keto diet? So I'm compelled by this. Uh, I've been annoyed by them because I have to go eat with them and they eat really unfun stuff and makes me feel like gross because why am I eating, why am I shoveling funnel cake and whatever down my throat and they're like eating vegetables and stuff like that. But, But it's compelling enough now that I feel like I might give it a try. And these guys have um, enjoyed sustained significant weight loss without feeling hungry. I think that's the most interesting part of it for me. You don't wrestle with hunger because there are a million things you can eat. What you struggle with is bitterness and longing because of that list of things you can't eat. Because the things you can eat are the things you don't want to eat, and the things you can't eat are all the things you want to eat. And I realize that if you approach it On a meal-by-meal, decision-by-decision basis, there's no one in the world with willpower strong enough to maintain keto, meal-by-meal, choice-by-choice. I tried living that way. Every time I sat down at restaurants, I tried to make the healthy choice, and I did it for years. As I've gotten older, I heard this weird voice inside me saying, just enjoy your last years, dude. Eat what makes you happy. So I have been. I don't think I have the willpower to sit down meal after meal, snack after snack, seven to ten times. I mean, that's probably on average how many times we sit down to eat something. 
seven to ten times in a day, I don't think I have the willpower to consistently make that choice each time as a one-off. I realized, listening to my friends on keto, that the most important part of that was they made a fundamental decision before every other thing that they value the outcome enough that they will bear up under any restriction and any limitations that this involves. Before they made a thousand little decisions at the pantry or in the refrigerator or at a restaurant, they made one foundational decision that this is what they're pursuing no matter what it costs or how it feels or how it tastes. They made a a promise to themselves that they would pursue this other goal no matter what. And I find that to be so key to so many things in life. We try to find our most noble self decision after decision in the moment, and it never really is there. When you say, I'm going to work out tomorrow. No, you're not. Because you wake up in bed, it's warm, and you're tired, and you go, I'll work out tomorrow. If you don't make a fundamental decision before all the other decisions, you won't make those thousands of little decisions ever. Why am I saying all that? Because I think this principle holds in spiritual life. That before we can benefit from all the countless little decisions that build up our faith, we have to make a fundamental first decision above everything else. That what I want most in this earthly existence is to become like Jesus and build his kingdom and live my life for the one who saved me, no matter what that costs me along the way. I know that today in the church, that sounds like a decision that an elite few make. But when we read the scriptures paying attention, that is the foundational decision of every Christ follower. It is not the decision that the Navy SEALs of the kingdom make. It is the decision that all the saved must make. That we have found in this Jesus and his kingdom that thing of such surpassing value that if somehow I could become like him, I could become closer to him, do the things that make his heart joyful, then I will have gained more than all the riches of the world. If that foundational first decision is not made, it's very unlikely that the thousands of little decisions will go in that direction. Most of us, because of that foundational decision, many times because it's missing or it's muted, we don't pray to God until we're right in the thick of the trial. And when it hits us, then we pray with all our hearts, and our prayers are usually, help me process this and help me prevail over it. Those seem to be our two most common prayers when it comes to hardship. is help me understand why this is happening to me, and then make it stop as soon as possible. And I think the reason that that's the direction our prayers go in is because it's tipping the hat to the fact that we haven't made the foundational decision strongly enough. That if we begin by saying, God, make me more like you. Give me more of yourself. That's my greatest aim, to be like Christ and to be used for his purposes. If that is our first prayer, then when hardship strikes, we don't need to be so obsessively asking, why is this happening? 
And instead, we'll have a framework for understanding why it is happening. Because we asked for the final product of this to happen. When I was in high school, one of my friend's moms bought this machine. Sears Roebuck sold these vibrating belt machines. Did any of you guys have one in your house? The fact that they made this and like thousands and thousands of people bought them, it reveals to me that in, somewhere deep down in our human nature, we strongly prefer gain without pain. <laughs> you put this thing on and just, like for like an hour, and then you'd be all better. I don't think it works that well. They say now, some research says, maybe it's releasing some immunosuppressing, um, I mean, immunological processes and B cells and things like that that are helpful, but they don't actually help with weight loss. Who knows? All I know is that reminds me that we'd rather gain lots from doing nothing than the other way around. And so that makes me think that if we want to grow, I'm not sure I trust our instincts as to how we expect growth should happen. We say things like, God, I want to own my own successful business, and I want to do it where I get increasing sales every quarter after quarter without much effort or wisdom. And it just happens. I find this thing that everyone wants to buy without advertising, and I just get richer and richer every day, and I'm on my private island, and I'm on my yacht, and and I just want that life. And so we say, I want to be a successful business person. And then the outcome is you'll get there, but you'll go through the grind to get there. I want to be happily married. I want to have someone to grow old with. The outcome is, here's this person, but it ain't going to be easy. If you want to get there, there's going to be a journey. Every married person in this room knows that's true. I show this illustration to say that when we pray for a thing, we shouldn't be too insistent that we know how God's supposed to do it. Because if I look at the way I pray, you learn an awful lot about the way people pray. We pray in a way that presumes that we know exactly how best these results will happen in our lives. You know, I wasn't going to share this, but um, when I was in eighth grade, I was having a birthday party, and to show you just how innocent I was until I got to high school, in eighth grade, I was still obsessed with Legos. Okay, I was a nerd. And I dropped hints to all my friends, you come to my birthday party, bring Legos, man. You know what I'm saying? And every one of my friends except one got the hint. This one fool brought this 8-track cassette. That's how old I am. I don't know if you know. Look it up on Google, 8-track cassette. He brought this 8-track cassette called Hot Nights and City Lights. Compilation of disco tunes and other hits from the early 80s and late 70s. And um, I was like, what the crud is this, man? I said Legos. So I remember thinking that this was the most disappointing gift of all the gifts I received. I opened all my Lego sets. I played with my brother. And then I'm like, what is this junk? And I finally opened it, stuck it in our 8-track player. And that album changed my whole life. Set me down this weird black hole of music. I mean, like, like Amy Stewart's Knock on Wood was on that album. That's the first time I felt this thing in my body start to, what's happening to me? I, I'm not just listening. I, I can't stop moving. What is this? 
And from that day on, every party I went to had to be about music and dancing. Sometimes, the thing that's most going to change the direction of our life is the thing we don't ask for. I want to close with an excerpt from this book by a woman named Letty Coleman. She was a missionary for most of her life. As she grew older, she began to write books, devotionals, and reflections on the Christian journey. One of her books is called Streams in the Desert. And I love what she wrote on this particular entry. Often it is simply the answers to our prayers that cause many of the difficulties in the Christian life. We pray for patience, and our Father sends demanding people our way who test us to the limit because suffering produces perseverance. We pray to the Lord as his apostles did, saying, Increase our faith. Then our money seems to take wings and fly away. Our children become critically ill. An employee becomes careless, slow, and wasteful, or some other new trial comes upon us requiring more faith than we ever before experienced. We pray for love for others. And God sends unique suffering by sending people our way who are difficult to love and who say things that get on our nerves and tear at our heart. He does this because love is patient, love is kind. It is not rude. It is not easily angered. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I end with that excerpt because it's such a good reminder that sometimes we pray the right thing but expect the wrong thing. We're right to pray for these Christ-like qualities to grow in us. But don't be too dogmatic in praying how God must answer that prayer. Sometimes he will answer that noble prayer with one of the hardest seasons of your life. If your focus is on returning to wellness and stability and comfort, that will be one of the most painful and damaging seasons of your life. But if in the midst of bearing through that, you can also say to God, if this should not be wasted, then use it, God, to shape in me the things that the days of comfort often do not. Don't waste this suffering if I must go through it. Don't waste it, God. Use it somehow to shape me in ways that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. I want to stress that there are hardships you are going through over which you have no control. And I don't want this message to damage you because you hear it's your fault or you can get yourself out of it. That's not at all what is being said here. But there are trials we cannot avoid, try as we might. We'll pass through them. And the real question is what will be the fruit? of that hardship we must experience.
God's word holds out this hope that though we hate suffering, sometimes it is through suffering that the heart and character and beauty of the living God emerges out of our lives. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. If this strikes you fairly close to home, sit with that a minute, listen for God's voice, talk to Him. If it makes you mindful of someone close to you that you love, pray for them right now. respond to God in prayer just for a moment of quiet. even if you find yourself in a place this morning where your biggest question about suffering is why? Why is this happening? Don't let that be a rhetorical question. Ask God why He would permit such hard things for you. If He is the Father who loves you, He has a plan for your life that's redemptive then ask him sincerely, why is this happening? What am I meant to grow in, to change, to to believe differently through all of this? How can this hardship be pain that God wants to turn into gain? Why don't we pause just a moment to give an opportunity for those who are in that place right now. Would you just take a moment and ask God to help you understand your hardship differently? To answer that question. Before we sing, I want to ask for just one more prayer for us. We don't often think about our enemy. But it's in the midst of hardship that he often shows up most profoundly in our lives. And he likes to masquerade as someone other than himself. 
Sometimes it sounds like your own voice talking. And what he tempts and seduces us to is always our lowest self. Don't keep hoping. Don't trust people. Don't open your heart. Protect yourself. Don't stick it out. Quit. Give up. Nothing's worth it. These are the voices that are the most common experience of spiritual warfare in most people's lives. And I think it's important that if we're going to fight, we fight boldly. So I'd like to invite us this morning simply to say a prayer in the authority of Jesus to the enemy who hates his kingdom. Shut up and get lost. We say that to people. Why don't we say to the one being in the universe who most deserves it? Shut up and get lost. You have no place here among us. You have no power in our life. There is one in us greater than you, so shut up and get lost. I'm tired of your weak, compromising voice in my life. Shut up, get lost. Could I invite you just to declare that boldly in the authority of Jesus? We just want to be honest and pray to you right now that hardship is terrible. We hate these seasons of pain and loss and frustration that make us feel powerless. And yet we also acknowledge that very often you are in that hardship trying to do something in our lives. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come have your way. We want to become more like you. And we want our lives to be spent doing the things that matter most for your purposes. We admit, Lord, that that's not what we want in the flesh. But in our spirit, that is what we want. And so we boldly pray, make us more like you. Make us more available to you, whatever the cost. Help us to pray that with sincerity of heart. And whatever you send, whatever you allow to shape and form us, help us get through it. That in your hands, so much of the pain in our lives will become great gain. And Lord Jesus, we have no authority but what you have given us. So we appeal to you, we cry out to you, because the enemy is coming after us. And that voice of compromise and quitting. And so we pray in your authority and in your name, Jesus. 
we say to him, shut up and get lost. This is not your house. You have no place among the people of God. We are filled with the presence and the power of the living God. And your lies will not carry the day. The truth of God will. We declare that boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.